Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. What if there were a way to generate massive amounts of affordable carbon-free energy with minimal environmental impact or safety risk? Sounds too good to be true, but nuclear fusion just might be the kind of energy source that America and the world has been waiting for. Michael Binderbauer is the CEO of California-based TAE Technologies, a company trying to develop an a-neutronic commercial fusion reactor. Michael joins us on this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, to explain how his team is trying to make fusion power a real thing. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Jim, for having me. Excited to be here. I've been really looking forward to it. I'm excited that you're here. Let's start out with uh, sort of a sort of an easy one, I guess. Uh, what is sort of the current state of your company's technology? And in describing that, could you tell me how it sort of differs from other approaches in the field, keeping in mind, I am not a nuclear physicist. Yeah, understood. All right. Well, it's a it's a it's a great great introductory question. So TAE's been around, um, as you probably have read, for a good two decades plus. But the twenty five year anniversary was just this past April, actually. Um, and we're at the stage now. It's really exciting. Where the the machine we're under construction on now, which we call Copernicus, which is our generation six. He's actually intended to get us to a point to demonstrate that we can harvest more energy than we have to feed it. And this is on a really engineering comparison, right? How much energy comes into the site and deploys on the machine versus how much can you harvest? Uh, and to be fair, this is not a full power plant. So we're going to measure the kind of heat output, right? The the, right. the collective heat output on it. Now, um, that's that's where we're going. And, and that's really um, enabled by 20 plus years of a journey of, interestingly enough, a lot of scientific nuance discoveries, maybe is fair to say, but mostly technology development. What you learn is, is that um, the journey that we were on was mostly one of underestimating the complexity of, you know, power supplies, vacuum systems, uh, heating systems in the form of us, this means uh, energetic um, particle beams and the, and the technological tool chest around those things and making that work as a, as a symphony, you know, as a symphony or as a nice orchestra to to do what we needed to do. And that's really where, where we spend most of the time. And now we're at the point where there's a confluence in understanding the science, understanding or having actually full practice capability, mastery of the tools, like bringing these two things together in the sixth generation machine to drive um, net energy output, right? So that's the goal. So the other thing you asked me was, how do we differ and and kind of contrast that a little bit? Because this is a bit of a, a very interesting moment for uh, for Fusion broadly, which are a number of startups. Uh, we, of course, uh, some of my listeners might be familiar with the the breakthrough uh, from the National Ignition Facility, which is, which isn't really meant to create uh, a, a nuclear power plant, but it was it, did, it was a great kind of proof of of concept that we can do some sort of fusion here. So yeah, so I guess in, in, in a somewhat understandable way, given my own personal limitations, like what are you doing that's uh, uh, that's sort of different than maybe some some of the other companies, such as I mean, I've written about Commonwealth Fusion and a few others as well. Of course, 
Yeah. So let, let me let me start by saying that for most of that, I should give credit to my brilliant PhD mentor and you know, who's a technical co-founder and co-founder in general of our of, of TAE. Uh, Norman Rostocker was his name. And Norman had an illustrious career in the field of fusion science and in fact accelerators and a few other areas of physics. He was a very sort of polymath and really broad guy, which probably was a critical ingredient to get to where we are today. And so while he was very instrumental in the early days of the field in putting together a lot of the fundamental, you know, theory and things that if I always joke and say, you can't get a PhD in this field without suffering through a lot of the stuff he discovered. <laughs> but he also was very critical at the, at the later stage in his career. And he looked at this and said, if we want to build something that caters to power production in a civilian way with, you know, good economics and, you know, the right kind of um, maintainability and practicality, uh, then maybe what we're doing as a field today on the large sort of federal or national program funded research was sort of missing the mark a little bit because he was building towards the Tokomax, which some of your readers may know as donut shaped machines, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest of which is the, the under construction in the south of France right now as a big international project. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Norman looked at that and said, you know, that can get us to maybe net energy, but not necessarily practical net energy or economic net energy. In the end, it's about an applied end product, right? That we're going after, not textbook knowledge in a sense, or a proof point for, for a laboratory experiment. And so with that in mind, when the company, before it even started, this is in the early 90s, when I became a student, he had a, a very delineated philosophy of sort of end in mind. Let's look what this needs to look like. And that's pretty trivial to define, right? If I ask you, what do you think a good power plant should look like? You could probably tell me, right? If, it, if, it, if we can't make it non-polluting, great. We want to make sure that it doesn't have maintenance every day. It's up right. most of the time. And, you know, and it can compete with what the what the grid needs today in terms of economics. Where's, who else makes power with from coal to gas to whatever else? And, and that's kind of how we started. Is that that would be the ideal reactor. And now how can we cater to that, right? And what is the what is the gap if you reverse engineer from there to today that you have to fill? And that's really where we started. And that led to a remarkably different trajectory. One of those, the first one, frankly, was fuel, right? When you think about um, tritium, which is the conventional sort of goal set, um, and that's a fuel that's heavy hydrogen, right? And so when you, when you burn that, quote unquote, you get neutrons, which we know from fission. Those are what propagates fission, the fission process. And, and if, if, if you have a lot of neutrons, you get radioactivity. And tritium by itself is also used in our warheads. It's not the ideal material to use in a civilian setting. It's typically classified, um, et cetera. So there's all these headaches. And there's very little tritium, by the way, to go around. There's like 50 kilograms of free tritium in the world. And you know, and that's super expensive. Something like $30,000 a gram or so is what's usually quoted. Um, so there's a lot of handicap there if you want to turn that into an economic prosperous thing. And so we said, all right, well, what else is terrestrially possible? And so... Uh, you know, not to be um, philosophical and say God gave us a very narrow bookshelf, but it kind of is. I mean, you have on one end, you've got the neutronic fuel cycle with tritium. And then on the other end uh, um, of this small bookshelf, you have hydrogen and boron, which are copiously available, both, right? There's no radioactivity to go in. And by the way, when they burn, you get three helium particles, which is where our initial name came from, tri-alpha energy. We call helium particles in nuclear physics alpha particles. And so you look at it and you say, oh, that's pretty good. You know, I, I don't have radioactivity as a byproduct. I don't have to worry about shielding. I don't have high costs associated with those things. And by the way, if you look where boron is used today, it's dirt cheap commodity products in detergents and soaps and cleaning right. products and things like that, right? 
So um, in a way, it fits the bill. Now, its big handicap is it needs a higher burn temperature to cook. Very hot. Yeah. You look at tritium on one end, that's about 100 million degrees, which already sounds insane, right? But right. keep in mind, as a physicist, we sort of define that as just the energy state in that in that material, in that beyond the gas. We call these plasmas, right? So this plasma is at 100 million degrees for tritium. And if you want to burn boron, you need about a billion degrees. Now, that sounds absolutely crazy, but it's not the stoveplate hot of a solid. It's a very few particles that get get to zip around in the container right. at very high energy. And that gets you to that definition of eventually a billion degrees. And by the way, for reference, the big um, Hadron Collider at CERN, the LHC, right? Uh, that actually makes charged particle clouds with temperatures up to 5 trillion degrees. So we can actually do this. Amazingly, human have, humans have a, a technology base to actually do that. So we started with the idea of if we wanted that fuel cycle, we've got to find a container and a process that can hold that together and create those energetic states we need. And that led us ultimately to what um, is referred to a field reverse configuration. And I won't bore everybody with, with, the, right. the, with the detail of that. It's a mouthful to begin with, but it's a very interesting magnetic container uh, and I will say that much that it, instead of in the case of most other confinement systems where you have a lot of magnets on the outside, and by the way, the magnets are a big cost component in a reactor, right? right? They're superconducting, yeah. they're large in scale, complex to manufacture. And in this case, in the FRC, most of the field is actually created by the plasma itself. So plasma is these charged particles. If they flow, they create a current and the current can make a magnetic field. And so you can self-envelope the plasma can self-envelope with a magnetic field that it generates from its currents. And, and that can help, believe it or not, hold it in place. It sounds kind of perverse, but it works. And the idea behind that was uh, was derived uh, about 50 years ago. Almost everything in fusion had some origins back many, many decades ago. Uh, but it was always considered too finicky to make work because one thing you can appreciate, if there's anything wrong in the flow in the plasma, well, then the fields start to deteriorate. And so it right. can very quickly get into a negative feedback cycle unless you can keep it stable and well-controlled. And that's what we developed now. So now we have this perfect incarnation of it where we can run at will for as long as we want. We control this with active feedback today uh, with you know extremely fast circuits and very smart um, software that's machine learning based that self-corrects, recognizes patterns and stuff. So take it as a supposition now, we have now an ability to make these field reverse configurations at scale, at meters in size, and can hold them steady as long as we want. And now what's interesting about that container is that has a much easier scalability from a physics right. perspective to those high energy conditions. And this is why it's the right container to marry with the hydrogen boron. And most people just didn't go there for two reasons, I would think. One is that you know um, when, you work, when, when the field works mostly on, say, tokamaks, then there is so much knowledge base developed there that in a way it self-propagates and the, the, the incoming young people that get graduate education, right? They work on what's the most prolific thing, which have to be right. max. And so it sort of self-propagates. And the other thing, of course, is people felt that confinement or the ability to hold this material together is already really stressful. And so if you have to go to 100 million degrees, let's let's try to celebrate there before we bother going further. And Norman was more maverick and said, well, but that's not a good endpoint to be. So why don't we shoot for something a bit more, um, you know, out there that can really bring all that together. And as a graduate student, I was game for that. I thought this was a brilliant idea. It, 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 it appealed to me enormously to say, let's connect 
what we're trying to do to the applied end product. And that's mm -hmm. where we um, started first in the university and then built the business. Where you are right now, what is required to get to the endpoint, which is a commercial reactor? Does that require continuous incremental progress and success? Or does it still require something that you might call leaps in in the, in the technology? Uh, so, kind of, so, where, so are, where are we to get to that endpoint? So, of course, I should also explain, right, that temperature increments like you're walking up a ladder, right? There's there's right. different steps to it. At the step where, where we are now, we're operating today the machine, the Generation 5, which we actually call Norman, by the way, in its yeah. honor. We named it Norman. And it was really the reason that was a pivoting is because it, it it established the scientific proof that you can actually create stable long-lived field reverse configurations with the right attributes. And today we're doing that about 75 million degrees in the current machine that runs every day about 50, 60 experiments. And so we know we can scale, we're really sure we can scale this to 100 million degrees, right? And and so what gives 100 million back to the, the fuels, that doesn't give you boron, but that gives you tritium. And so if you think about sort of a, a, an approach of sequences, is you ramp up to a billion degrees, somewhere you have to cross 100. So you have something harvestable there from an economic right. opportunity. And so Copernicus, the next machine, generation six that I alluded to earlier, is the machine that's going to enable us to get into the tritium level regime. So this machine is going to show net energy capability at the 100 to 150 million degree mark, which is typically where people operate with tritium. And we were slated to do that um, by about 26, somewhere late 25 right. into 26. Um, and that's what we're constructing and, and, and fully projected to do. Now, assuming success on that, which I believe is, is very much in our favor. I mean, we're within less than a factor of two of those operating conditions already. And yeah. we have the engineering and you know the mastery, the operational mastery on this in hand. Then the next step after that is to scale that up and build a machine that's about a factor of eight or so up in energy. And that gets you into the regime of um, the boron operation, right? And, and uh, that's the stage when um, when we think we will have uh, net energy demonstrated out of hydrogen boron, and that's probably early 2030s. And so, again, coming back, the next three years, make a machine that gets into the tritium equivalent operational regime. One thing I should point out, perhaps people may question, are we using tritium in the machine directly? We are not. So what okay. we're doing, and I can get into why that is, uh, Commonwealth, for instance, you mentioned earlier, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, CFS, right? They're trying to be a bit more ambitious and build this tokamak and eventually fuel it with tritium. That has a much larger price tag and, and you know operational right. complexity because tritium is not an end game for us. I just want to enable the 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 you know the energetic state to burn right. tritium without actually doing it. And then the field has today sufficient enough confidence and, and maturity to understand that if you can hold the material together at the 100, 150 million degrees with the right density and everything, yes, you could make tritium-based net energy if you wanted to. And that'd be for somebody else to do, but TAE wants to march on and build its boron reactor. So there's a technical challenge that you feel like you're on track and you're you're sort of hitting some milestones there. And then there's sort of the economic challenge that we just don't want to get this thing to work. You want to get this thing to work so it makes sense that it's someday this thing can get plugged into an electrical grid. How do you feel about that that aspect? Like, like how much is this, how pricey or inexpensive or expensive will this energy be, assuming 
uh, the not insignificant, you know, technical challenges are met, uh, you know, sometime, you know, in the next decade or what have you. Yeah. So great question, right? I think um, obviously we haven't built one yet. We haven't we haven't yeah. built the prototypes yet, so let alone right. uh, the full power plant. But um, there is actually a, a quite sane projection forward to those cost points from the fact that, I mean, after 25 years of working on this, we have a pretty good sense what we need. We have a, a great supply chain and partnerships established uh, with people who build not exactly this, but things like this. So you can do some estimates and you also know, as I said earlier, magnets are like one of the biggest items, right? So there's a large amount of cost in there. The other big item that between those two, it co controls more than two thirds or is the heating equipment, right? And that can be radio frequency heating, like a microwave basically, or like what we mostly use is injecting highly directional um, beams of atomic particles, neutral atoms that come in and then they, you know, they collide with the fuel and then they, they, they basically transfer the energy that we directly shoot in and it becomes heat in the machine. So those two kind of things, the heaters and the container system, the magnets are the big yeah. expense items. And so when you when you get a sense for where you need to be and what the geometry looks like and so on, you can actually make a reasonable estimate at cost. And so I'm saying this at the same time, I'm asking for forgiveness if we're gonna be off because obviously in the end, there'll be a lot of detail that'll add to that. But I think what we what we believe, and I have confidence that that's correct, that the first generation of plants coming out of this, let's say it's somewhere in the mid 2030s, we'd have the first uh -huh. commercial plants installing, uh, and you know not plant one, which is a hand built one of a kind, right? But if you build maybe tens of plants, you will be at a point where you have some learning curves, right? That bring prices down. You kind of know now how to do it. I wouldn't say it's mass produced yet, but it's going into a more efficient production cycle. I think we will slot in somewhere in the midfield today of generation assets. So if you're looking at, you know, solar, wind, um, and maybe, maybe solar, maybe more than wind today, but you also add things like um, gas in the US, right? Those are on the low end of, of the economics um, in terms of yeah. uh, the what they call LCOE, the levelized cost of electricity, right? And then if you look at the upper end, you will find nuclear and the things where there's a lot of safety margin built in. And so we'll be somewhere in the mid in the field in, in between there. Right. And 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 uh, that gets you pretty competitive right there because it has two other incredible attributes. Uh, one is that there is really no variability in fuel cost because it's literally free because you need so little. Fusion is super high energy dense. Right. So you don't need much. And the other aspect is that it doesn't pollute really. Right. There's no carbon involved. And there's really no radioactivity to speak of. And so you're ending with something that can be baseload power. Uh, that's dispatchable, as they call it today. The human controls when it's on and when it's not, right? Not the sun or the wind. And and you have essentially green energy. So I think um, in that sense, even if it's more expensive than some of the cheapest things today, but it's midfield, it'll be very competitive on a global basis. And it'll be an important component that the world will need. How big a facility would you need to like power... Cincinnati or, or Chicago, like how would that I mean? Is it because I, because I, again, my only experience is looking at the you know rather big nuclear fission reactors, which are very, you know fairly big. So would this be a lot smaller than that? Yeah, I think well, but two things, right? So I mean, there's the machine size, and then it's the installation size, the site, right? 
I mean, in, in, in nuclear fission today, right, you have, of course, exclusion zone around the plant. There's a lot of the, the plot of land that it's on and then some incremental infrastructure, mm-hmm. safety, security, shielding, and so on adds a lot of additional cost and, and scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, if on a boron machine, you'd be looking at, I mean, the actual machine is a couple, maybe, maybe three double-decker buses back to back, something like that, mm-hmm. maybe a bit taller, but not that much. So that would be comparable to a large gas turbine, for instance, right? Or right. if you're in a hydro plant and you're looking at the generating units, it'd be sort of on that scale. So it's not it's not outsized relative to what conventionally is used in the utility space today. Now, if you look in the land footprint, it's pretty minimal. I mean, you're looking at, you know, a handful of acres at most. In fact, maybe even less over time. Now, um, the, that's with hydrogen and boron because you then don't have radioactivity to speak of. You don't have the chance during an accident. And the worst case accidents that a plant like that would suffer would be industrial skill things, like you know, a, a, a bad fire in a factory. It would just be, be simple, right? right? Um, right. It, but it doesn't. It doesn't have um, a nuclear meltdown capability. There is no chain reaction kind of thing right. we know from Chernobyl. And by the way, this isn't just true for TAE. It's true for all of fusion. Mm-hmm. It makes it really safe, right? So, so those attributes will shrink the site down. And so, if you're asking me how much, you know, how much can we get out of one of these systems at that scale? Probably somewhere in the order of half a gigawatt, four hundred to five hundred megawatts is sort of what we're shooting for. And this is like a, you know, it's a larger gas turbine system. And if you wanted to get gigawatt level power, like you would get out of a fission nuclear plant today, you would probably have, say, two, three of these units next to each other. And what I really think the world will go to and what we hear from talking to, you know, a lot of the utility people, it's a more distributed grid, ideally, right? I mean, you have things on the three to 500 megawatt scale that deploys... Um, in a way where you have more redundancy if you needed it, there's more there's more reliability, et cetera, right? And so this is kind of, in a way, the scale that I think you would look at. And so feeding a city like Chicago out of one plant with a whole Chicago metropolitan area is not going to happen, right? You would have a distributed set of systems. And we think by four, we think 400 megawatts or so, you know, get you get a few hundred thousand house lots that run on that, right? Uh, households, and then you um, you scale from there. You've been working on this for some time, and you know, obviously, I, you know, I work at a think tank, so I always think about what do you, what would you, do you want government to do something that it's not doing? Do you want government to stop doing something that it's currently doing? I know I've certainly talked to some, you know, startups, newer startups. You know, they're in partnerships with the Department of Energy. So, sort of, what is your engagement currently, and what would you need or not need from government going forward to get to uh, to get to where you need to go? That's a, a a great question and one that has evolved. You know, in the past, we've been purely privately funded and we built everything we've done so far on, on private capital. And we were the kind of the oldest of that. Now, there's, as you said, there's a lot of um, um, younger companies in the space too. And I think this is great. We get more shots on goal and it makes yeah. us more valid, I think. You know, we're the only lone idiots out there. There's actually <laughs> reason to believe that there's many smart people trying now. So that's a good thing. Now, where we're going, though, is at a stage where I think public-private partnerships actually start to make sense. And when you look at the history of any kind of energy technology that came about, nuclear is sort of, I hate to use it in a way because it seems like we're so similar. We're, we're obviously very different in some ways. We share the taxonomy nuclear, but that's about it, right? But fission, if you look at the evolution there or or everything, it, it, got, it gets subsidies. 
it, there's a risk offtake for the early plans that the government tends to shoulder, right? It can be a loan guarantee, can be other kind of financial arrangements. And then eventually it becomes commercial enough in the sense that people believe in the viability, they have a good sense for its uh, reliability and so on. And then it just propagates into the market in, on, in, in a very capitalist free market sense. That transition out of the lab into that stage of you know really rolling out at scale, I think is where we absolutely need to count on government support. And in fact, what's wonderful to see now, I think over the last couple of years in particular, and you read about this, right? You see this, the White House last year had a summit uh, where we and a few others uh, in the front running in the private sector were there together with the national labs and people from DOE. And we had a very productive conversation about what the White House framed a bold decadal vision for fusion. So important in that, right, is the recognition that it's not always 30 years away and always will be. It's much closer. Yeah. And what can we do proactively and collectively to accelerate that, right? And I think that's what's really heartening to see that as we're getting to that proof point now, we're going to get energy and then we want to leap to a, a prototype and a power plant. We're going to need that help, right? And there is a public-private partnership around multiple things on the technology or production side, but then also moving into the um, ultimate, how do you fund and 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 risk underwrite these early plants when utilities typically are more risk-averse, right? And so that we see on the federal level. And then on the state level, I don't know if you follow that, but recently California and North Carolina um, had um, a couple of bills coming out that, for instance, in California, we, we've we had this nuclear moratorium, right, where everything nuclear in nature is sort of not tolerable. Uh, and that's been modified. Now, fusion now is excluded out of that and, in fact, is now part um, of, you know, what they would call the benign side of the future of energy. And, in fact, the California bill made it very clear that, you know, it, it, it's to be treated as clean energy, essentially, right? And, and so in North Carolina, so you have now a blue state and a red state looking at it and saying, we want this. We need this. And we recognize the chance is high that over the next decade this comes about. The other thing I can add is that the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they just um, this year in, in a sort of landmark first step, the commission ruled um in, in in terms of where do we slot the uh the you know the regulatory framework in around fusion. It's not in in the old what's called part 50, which deals with you know the, the fission world, but it's gonna be in a world that's much closer to where you would um regulate a medical accelerator that makes you know pet isotopes for, for oncology uh, scanning and stuff, right? So the, they recognize that this is while nuclear and taxonomy, it's a very different form of risk. Uh, et cetera, to the public. And therefore, the level of regulation is lower. And that's equally important, right? So the government, the interaction with the government is super important now. And we're very heartened by the fact that we see there's really a nearing and an ex a, 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 a mutual excitement about bringing that out as quickly as possible against the backdrops of, you know, from, from climate change to whatever else people are worried about, right? With the national security and energy independence. And, and, and obviously, from my perspective, what I what I like is the idea that if if if, if fusion if, if fusion can succeed, it becomes uh, eventually a source of abundance because there's so much fuel here that we can harvest, right? And we think we can do this at very economic levels that you can lift up those parts of the world that today are living on the other side of the gradient in a very sort of depressed, you know, low quality of life 
And in fact, if you look at all the energy use projections or demand projections forward, right, you can see that we're going to more than double. And most of the demand comes from the underdeveloped world. And so fusion can be a, a very big contributor to a more equitable world as a whole. And, you know, and I think it's all these attributes that I think get people really excited. And I think now it's no longer just this visionary dream. We've, we're really, really close to doing it. And so I think that's that's why you see the government and everybody coming together now and beginning the, these earnest conversations over the next few years. How do we structure programs from regulation to working together to ultimately loan guarantees and other things in a public-private partnership to bring it to the grid? Michael, uh, exciting stuff. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much.